This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is Dr. Egan Chernoff, who is an assistant professor of mathematics education in the College of Education at the University of Saskatchewan, our second Canadian guest, so I'm excited for this. Uh, Egan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, and I just kind of want to take a moment here at the beginning and say I really enjoy uh, what you're doing here with the Math Ed Podcast. I think it's a great idea. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to do it. Um, We're going to be talking about a couple things here. So uh, Egan co-edited a new book called Probabilistic Thinking, Presenting Plural Perspectives. Um, So we're going to dig into that probabilistic topic for a while. And also Egan's um, putting a lot of work and effort into the social media of math education and just technological resources in general. So we're also going to spend some time talking about those issues and uh, getting Egan's insight on some valuable resources that we can find on the web and uh, in various places. But Egan, it sounds like you've been listening to the podcast, so you kind of know where I'm going to start. I like to just uh, ask people about their graduate school experience and where you studied and what you did your dissertation on. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I I did my work at Simon Fraser University, which uh, in Canada right now is sort of considered one of two of the the major hubs of math education, Uh, University of Alberta being the other uh, major hub historically connected with uh, for the learning of mathematics. Uh, So I'm part of what was called the David Wheeler Institute for Research in Math Education. David Wheeler, a prominent uh, mathematics education researcher from Canada and connected with, actually started uh, for the learning of mathematics. Oh. And uh, I did my work with uh, Professor Rena Zaskis up there. Okay, and what was your dissertation focused on? Uh, my dissertation was focused on uh, subjective probabilities, which are based on perceptions of randomness. So this is kind of continuing the work of uh, Amos Versky and Daniel Kahneman, two famous psychologists. Uh, and this research was brought over to the field of math education by Mike Shaughnessy, actually, uh, sort of in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, was continued, you know, built upon by uh, different individuals like Cliff Knold. And so I kind of worked on a variation of it, where this research is mostly focused on people comparing coin flip sequences and asking them to determine which of the sequences is, is most likely or least likely to occur. Yeah, so you mentioned Mike Shaughnessy. So I had a, uh, the pleasure of taking a course with Mike Shaughnessy. He was a guest uh, instructor at Michigan State University. And he's really a great person to work with and to know, and a past president of NCTM as well. So he's a wonderful contributor to a lot of areas of math education. Yeah, for those people that are you know conducting research in probability, his article uh, in 1992 in the NCTM handbook, his kind of synthesis of, of research on probability, uh, and statistics was, you know, is kind of considered one of the seminal pieces for people that are looking into the research on that. So, yeah, he made, you know, that and, and some other contributions. But that's a very important piece for uh, people talking about probability. Yeah. So what is it that really draws you personally to the study of probability and probabilistic reasoning? 
Uh, I think, uh, well, one of the things that, that draws me to it is the use of heuristics. Um, you know, these are sort of shortcuts that people will use to answer very complicated questions. And I think the counterintuitive nature of probability is something that, that also draws me to it. Uh, you know, and it's not restricted to teachers or to students or to, you know, just the normal person. Everybody that, we, that has been researched on this has been found to kind of fall prey to this. So we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have judges, uh, we have everybody kind of succumbing to the counterintuitive nature of certain probability tasks. Uh, one of the last chapters within the book is, is a quote uh, where Paul Erdős, you know, considered the greatest mathematician probably since Euler, uh, has, uh, <laughs> has seen the solution uh, to the Monty Hall problem and <laughs> said, well, uh, I see it now, but I still don't like it. So the counterintuitive <laughs> nature is something that really draws me to, to tasks and probability. Yeah. So you mentioned the book, um, and it's published by Springer in 2014. It's called uh, The Main Title is Probabilistic Thinking, and you co-edited that with um, Bharath Sriraman. Yes. Um, so could you tell us sort of what led to the book and, and what, you know, what case is really made for the, the need for that book at this time? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we put forward in the prospectus was that, uh, you know, we have um, a book in 2005 that comes out with Springer that is sort of the last kind of version of, of a major uh, a major book on probability. And so we were pushing almost a decade since that last book had come out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are major research syntheses in the, uh, in the handbook that came out, I think, in 2000, or the second handbook, which came out in 2007. Uh, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit later than that. So there was sort of a, a space or a bit of a lull there, and there started to be a piling up of, of books. Uh, there was a handbook in the early 80s. Uh, we see a book in the early 90s on probability. This is uh, Ramesh Kapadia and Manfred uh, Brovsnik, which are sort of two of the main names in probability education. And then we see Graham Jones' piece come out in 2005, and so there was not timing necessarily, but this was sort of a, an opportunity to kind of continue uh, with the, uh, the transition or the time in between seemed, seemed right for another book to come out on probability. Mm -hmm. And so it's an edited book, so you, um, you know, had a lot of different contributions from different people. So I was just wondering if you could kind of give us an overview of what readers could expect if they did pick up that book and look inside. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite pleased, actually. We had uh, 58 contributing authors, uh, you know, from around the world. We have six prefaces, about 29 chapters, and a bunch of different commentaries there. So what we tried to do, I guess my goal was to try and get everybody together. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I've seen a lot of people working on probability, writing articles, going to conferences, working at uh, dedicated working groups for probability, but there seemed to be, you know, some people would be here, but then other times other people would be missing. Uh, and we sort of had an opportunity with this book to kind of go big. And so that was one of the things that I decided to do was I tried to go big uh, and try and get everybody involved. And for the most part, uh, barring, you know, a few exceptions, uh, we, had, we had pretty much the majority of, of the people contributing to probability and math education come on board. But the nice part is, I think, how that's been broken down. So we sort of have four main perspectives in the book. We have the mathematical and the philosophical perspective, and then we have the psychological perspective. Then we have sort of the stochastics, which is kind of a, a term for pro probability and statistics. And then we have the mathematics education perspective. So we're coming at the topic of probabilistic thinking from sort of four main perspectives. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's nice to have a book, too, that doesn't just fall into one of those. I mean, this will allow people to read pretty comprehensively about the topic. Uh, I hope so, yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of the, the, the plan with it was to, you know, the more perspectives that you come at, the more you can put the subject in a greater context. So we tried to hit as many perspectives as possible, and in doing so, hopefully put probabilistic thinking in, in a greater context for people. Mm-hmm. So other than, you know, the public at large being pretty bad with probability, but but not even realizing how bad they are, possibly, um, are there some other overarching themes or, or a kind of a larger point that the book makes as a whole? Uh, I think what the, the larger overarching theme with it is that with respect to the field of mathematics education, uh, those investigating probability or sort of slowly coming into sort of the mainstream uh, notion of of mathematics education. So we see a number of areas which are sort of clearly established. I mean, no one's doubting that, uh, you know, research in algebra isn't a sort of a main staple of uh, research in, in math education. And I think what we're seeing with this book here and what's kind of been happening with those people investigating probability uh, we're sort of sort of seeing a shift or a push into sort of the mainstream math education. So we're seeing books like this. We're seeing uh, dedicated journals. Uh, we're seeing you know working groups. We're seeing uh, you know the International Conference on Teaching Statistics coming along. So uh, you know it's now in its ninth annual meeting coming up in July. So we're sort of seeing probability sort of separate a little bit. Um, and it's not that people haven't been conducting research, uh, you know, specifically with probability, but it's sort of kind of gaining its own footing. And I think we're also, while that's happening, uh, sort of entering a new phase of research in, in math education for those investigating probability. Mm-hmm. So the book is Probabilistic Thinking, Presenting Plural Perspectives, edited um, by Egan Chernoff here and also Bharath Sriraman. Um, so people can definitely uh, look for that, especially if you have any kind of interest in probability. And I know one of the things that I enjoy whenever I read about, especially probability, is the anecdotes um, about people, like you mentioned, um, kind of being off base with probability, not even realizing it, and also kind of doing some self-reflection about, you know, oh, wait, I actually have done that before, too, or I've thought that way. Uh, that wasn't actually valid. <laughs> it's actually interesting that you mentioned that. One of the things that I like to do with my methodology courses when uh, working with prospective secondary teachers is I like to spend some time with them on the Monty Hall problem. But the thing is, is that the Monty Hall problem has kind of become uh, pervasive a little. Uh, you know, it's uh-huh. in uh, 21 with Kevin Spacey. Uh-huh. Uh, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night, I think it's in there as well. And so what's happening is uh, people have seen the solution uh, to the Monty Hall problem, especially prospective secondary math teachers. Uh-huh. But they sort of have a bit of a revisionist history about how good they are at answering the question. So yeah. when, they, when they say, oh, yeah, you know, I saw the Monty Hall problem, and I know a lot of people get tripped up by it, but I knew that the solution was this the whole time. And then the nice part is uh, you can kind of do some parallel questions so like Bertrand's box paradox, which is sort of quite similar in a lot of examples, and they fall prey to the Bertrand's box paradox, and so I can kind of use that as a nice example to say, hold on a second, uh-huh. uh, you know, the first time you encountered the Monty Hall problem, maybe you weren't as sure <laughs> about your answer to it as you, yeah. as you kind of remember that you are with it. It's really interesting to see. Yeah. I remember my first experience was as an undergrad. I had a friend who was a stats major, and then I was a math major in math ed, and we heard about the problem, and we were we were like, no, that can't be the answer. We're like, no, it feels like you know, it feels like it's fifty fifty, and both of us kind of were that way. But we 
we had you know kind of the stats ability and math ability so we're like okay let's run a simulation and let's get some empirical kind of data so we started running the simulation and of course it comes out not 50 50 uh, i won't give it away if people haven't heard the whole problem but uh the simulations were not coming out that way so then we had to really stop and think hard and then we finally kind of like changed our perspective and said oh if we think about the first time you pick a door what are the odds that you're right on that first choice once we reversed our perspective, we could kind of realize that, oh, that's a way to think about it that matches with the empirical evidence from the simulation. But, no, I mean, for me, I was there with another person, so neither of us can revise that history because <laughs> we we have each other as witnesses to show that, no, we, we were thrown off by it at first for sure. So that's interesting stuff. I encourage people, I encourage listeners to explore the problem and these other related problems that you mentioned as well. The, uh, the simulation is actually how Paul Erdish uh, got over his, uh, his initial response to it not being 50-50. He was shown a simulation and then said, okay, uh, I see it now, but I still don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could talk more about that, but I also, Egan, want to tap into your uh, work that you're doing on social media and math education. So um, I want to first kind of plug there, at uh, Matthew Maddox uh, on Twitter, and then you have MatthewMaddoxEducation.com. Through your Twitter account and your website, you sort of curate the various mathematics education resources that are out there. So I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about that endeavor that you've undertaken and, and sort of how it is that you approach your curation. Well, uh, yeah, this is something that started out for me kind of, I think, 2009, maybe, when I first got onto Twitter. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to actively curate information in a variety of sort of digital repositories, I call them. So Twitter used to be one of the digital repositories that I had where I would take a look at all this information that was out there that was coming out on a daily basis that was just kind of slipping through people's fingertips, like it wasn't being preserved anywhere. And there was lots of information that was coming and the whole social media was just... Uh, the social media wasn't starting. I mean, Twitter was was out uh, much earlier than that. I'm considered a late adopter to Twitter because I think it was 2005, 2006 where it really gets going, and I'm not getting there till 2009. So I started just um, curating information. So when it first started out for me, uh, I just had to kind of it had to meet a simple criteria. Was that when I when I encountered this piece of information related to mathematics or mathematics education, I just asked whether it resonated with me not how it resonated, not why it resonated, just was this something that resonated with me? And if this information did resonate with me, I would, I would preserve it. I would make it part of the repository. Mm -hmm. And so I started initially out with Twitter and then soon realized that Twitter was becoming too stream of consciousness, too quick, uh, too fast. I wasn't able to kind of have the, the permanency uh, associated with it because I'm sure if you take a look at all of the followers that you have on Twitter now, someone can put something out into their Twitter feed, and within 15 minutes, it's thousands of tweets uh, later right. that that piece of information is out there. So that was part of my move, not only to my, my Tumblr blog, which I've called Mathematics Education, but it was also my, my attempts at doing this in a number of different places as well. So I have something that I call Mathematics Debris out there. And Mathematics Debris <laughs> is social media platforms that I kind of gave it a shot at, but wasn't really working out or kind of, uh, you know, looking to, to do what I wanted it to do. So an example of that was the social bookmarking site Delicious. Mm -hmm. um, that, that I consider Mathematics Debris because it's something <laughs> that I made an effort at, but it just didn't really work out well for me. And there's some uh -huh. other ones as well, you know, Stumble Upon, which I really liked. Uh, was something that I tried. 
didn't really work out. So, so there are some places when you go out there and start looking for things by mathematics, they, they don't look up to date or they're not continued. And there's a very simple reason for that is that they're sort of not been continued. They're sort of debris that I have kind of floating out there. So my two main areas right now are Twitter and Tumblr. And there's sort of a hierarchy with everything. So a lot of what people ask me uh, is they say, uh, do you have a life or do you have any time? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because it looks like I'm very active, but what I'm doing after, you know, a number of years has become very specific and very quick. It doesn't take me much time uh, to do what I'm doing. I, I guess I would call myself, uh, for lack of a better word, like a prosumer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have sort of an elaborate system of RSS feeds, of listservs, of all this information that's coming in for me. And then what I need to do is really just open my inbox for the Internet. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you would open your inbox for your email in the morning and you have a whole bunch of mail that's there for you and you might star one, you might reply to one right away, you might leave mm -hmm. a couple alone, you might delete some. Yeah. I have the exact same thing. So then what I need to do with my inbox for the internet is just sort of look at what level this, this hits for me. So the clearest of the clear signals will end up on my blog. And then mm -hmm. what happens is uh, anything that's posted to my blog is automatically pushed to a number of different places. So it's pushed to Twitter, uh, it's pushed to Facebook, it's pushed to Google+, uh, it used to be pushed to LinkedIn as well. So the person that, you know, is interested in following this information can pick their poison, if you will. Right. I'm not restricting you to, to be using Twitter to get this information or to be using Google+. So right. that, although it looks like you're quite active because it looks like you're publishing to four or five different places, you're really just using a few programs like If This Then That, and, and it goes everywhere with it. Yeah. So, so then it's just kind of determining, you know, I have some things that are posted to Twitter that don't make it to the blog. But so there's sort of like a hierarchy amongst all the different social media platforms that I'm using. Right. But you're kind of your your best stuff or your your favorites. They're on the blog, which means they get pushed out widely. Right, and so a lot of the stuff on Twitter gets pushed out as well to sort of Facebook, uh, but it doesn't go to Google Plus and it doesn't go back up to the blog as well. But this is where things sort of started to change for me. Was that when I started posting things, I would start to post a few things that you know not didn't necessarily resonate for me the same way that, that I would actually post it. But then what would happen is sometimes those would be the posts that people would retweet the most or hmm. the posts that people w would favorite the most. And then I sort of made a bit of a conscious decision that, hold on a second here, this isn't really just doing it for me now. I need to take into consideration that other people might find this of interest as well. So this sort of muddied the waters of, of what I what I post and what I consider, you know, I had a new reason for something resonating for me because it didn't necessarily resonate for me. But the fact that a number of people were favoriting something or retweeting something is now something that resonates with me. So the the reason or justification for posting, uh, you know, shape shifts and it changes and it, it kind of grows as, as I continue to use it. Mm -hmm. My guest is Egan Chernoff from the University of Saskatchewan. And so, Egan, I'm what, you know, I know at the university you probably have some teaching responsibilities. You have your scholarship that you're undertaking um, that we talked about a little bit earlier. But I was just wondering how the social media and how this work that you're doing online, how that intersects with your teaching or how it maybe intersects with your scholarship. Uh, so with the teaching, I think one of the things that I found, you might have this at your university as well. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but at the University of Saskatchewan, it's called PAUSE. And it's sort of the online system, the student portal. 
uh, mm-hmm. where teachers can go in and they can, you know, post homework or they can send out emails or they can do all of that information. Do you have something similar? At yeah, we have uh, we have Blackboard, but I've used Angel before. Um, there's some other ones too. Yeah, so what, what's really interesting for me is that I'm now using uh, other social media platforms instead of Pause because I found that my information was getting to students quicker uh, if I would post to them, hey, your homework sheet is up on Twitter, and I would use a hashtag uh, that would have the class, so like hashtag eker312 mm-hmm. uh, is for my one of the courses that I teach. Yeah. Uh, and students were, were getting the information through Twitter and through my blog, uh, not so much on the blog as it is on Twitter, but they were accessing the information quicker if I had anything about the class. Uh, so it's sort of, uh, I saw it as kind of a, a shift almost uh, to where people were accessing their information because they're, they're checking into their social media accounts uh, much more frequently than they are with, uh, with their online student system. So even if it's just an indicator to them, it might not be the actual homework sheet for the week, but there's a way to say, hey, the homework sheet is now posted, and they see that, and then we'll go to access the information. So that's something that I've been using it for in the class. Uh, in terms of the scholarship, I think one of the things that, that I've been using it for is I've been using it to promote uh, some of my material. Mm-hmm. So when the book came out, uh, you know, I have a, a Vine, my first ever Vine uh, for the book. I've been taking some pictures, you know, showing a, a stacked version of the book versus what it looks like on the iPad mini, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of yeah. uh, one of the things that they're wanting, you know, the publishers want you to do is they want you to sort of push the product a bit. And I think, you know, This is something that we're seeing a lot of people using social media, uh, you know, like stand-up comedians, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. bands. They're all doing this. They're using these forms of social media to promote what they're doing. And I think this is sort of something similar to that as well. You know, when an article comes out, I'll let people know, you know, here's where you can access it. Here's where you can do that. So a big part of it is sort of the promotional aspect of it. But then it's also following up to date with everything that's going on. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the nicest things uh, somebody said to me was uh, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Amy Mamelo, uh, had an article that came out and I and I wrote her an email and I said, hey, nice article. And she wrote an email back and said, how did you know that it came out before I knew that it came out? <laughs> and so this is sort of that the inbox for the Internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you set it up properly with RSS feeds from all the publishers and Google alerts and Google Scholar alerts, there's a there's a way to sort of have all the information coming to you it's sort of sit back and have it all come in so it's it's a neat time to to be able to have it happen that way yeah and think about how much time it saves from having to just go and check various different places like oh what's in the new issue of this has something been published on that did i miss an important reference that i should have on my list to read um just to have that all coming to you i mean it seems like that would save just a lot of time it, it absolutely does, and the best part is is that, you know, this, this Web 2.0 that's sort of doing all this work in the background is that information is all coming to me, but I can be walking the dog, and it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. happening, or I can be doing this, or I can be doing that. So it's sort of yeah. happening in the background, and then the beauty of it is if you set up that inbox for the Internet, you get to choose when to sort of dip in and check what's in there and mm-hmm. kind of do with it uh, what you will. But those those email alerts and that, it's all happening in the background while we get to do all this other fantastic stuff. So it's it's really a really neat setup. 
Yeah. So um, a couple of comments. I mean, you mentioned with the teaching, using the, using the hashtags with your class. I know a few colleagues, um, Dave Coffey and John Golden at Grand Valley State, and uh, Mike Steele, who's now at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, they've really used Twitter to kind of expand and deepen their classroom discussions about important topics in math education. They'll use a class hashtag maybe before class or maybe after class, and the conversation will either kind of get going on Twitter or maybe it will follow up on Twitter um, and sort of bulking up the discussion that also happens during the class period. Um, so that's a nice use of that. And then I know you mentioned, too, the promotion of the scholarship, um, which is important. And that's part of the reason for me kind of having this podcast is to help a lot of people in the field, give them another venue with which to promote their work and make people aware of the research that they're doing and the work that they're involved in. So that's something yeah, that I, I definitely value, too. That's something that I was going to try and maybe ask you here is, is so this is something that's happening in a bunch of other areas, uh, you know, in, in the world that we live in, and it didn't exist in math education. So what would happen is somebody would publish an article and then the article would come out and then people would read the article and there might be a conversation about it. But one of the things that we see in a lot of other aspects in, in, in life, like is the movie gets promoted. You know, the, the band comes along and they promote their album. So there's this element to it. And I think part of the reason why I like so much what you're doing here with the podcast is it's sort of making the work that we're doing uh, similar to what other people are doing. You know, so, so someone will sit down and talk with the person in the movie. And, and I see that as sort of an element to it. Is that kind of what you had envisioned when you were thinking about the podcast? Uh, yeah, I think definitely that's part of it. You know, I think I think it's nice to hear from the researcher themselves kind of in their own voice, you know, what went into the work, what motivated it, what are some kind of key takeaways. But I think it really does kind of serve as a promotion. You know, it's it's similar to, like you said, an, an actor going on the talk show circuit to promote right. the new, new movie. I, th- I think of it kind of like that, where it's the researcher going, people listening to it, it's kind of like a little 25, 30-minute advertisement or preview of the article. And then people that are interested or people that want to cite it or people that want to see the details can go and grab that article and maybe they wouldn't have known about it or maybe they wouldn't have realized the connections that they made to it if they hadn't heard the researcher talk about it. Um, So I think that's definitely a big part of the podcast, kind of helping the researcher get their work out there. The other motivation for it was really to help the listener. Um, I think, you know, faculty uh, in math education, graduate students in math education, and then teachers, I think it hopefully also benefits the listeners. Um, because for me, when I was in grad school, we would sometimes, you know, we would read a lot of studies, a lot of articles. Um, but sometimes we would have the author call into our class and sort oh, of have wow. do a Q&A with us. You know, maybe it was a friend of, like, my instructor or maybe somebody that's just willing to do that. Or a few times we actually had them on campus so they'd stop in and visit our grad class and talk about their study. And what I noticed for myself was... When we got access to the author and we heard them talking about the study and giving, you know, maybe a little bit of the backstory, maybe some of the inside scoop, I always remembered those studies. I remembered the methods. I remembered, you know, the motivation for it. I remembered the findings. Um, Out of these, you know, dozens and dozens of articles that I read, those ones always stuck with me even years down the road. And so I felt like the podcast was a way to bring that, you know, to others um, basically, just like I had an author calling into my grad class, this podcast can kind of be the author calling in to everybody who listens to it. And so hopefully it'll make them, you know, it'll help the listener connect with the study more, and maybe it will even stick in their memory more because they actually heard the voice of the author talking about it. 
Yeah, it, yeah. It's sort of uh, it's such a neat idea for for me, and and because we we don't question it when it happens for a movie or when there's a band or when you know Breaking Bad is done. You know, everybody's sitting down and they're having this conversation about it, and they're talking to the people that are involved. And this sort of this technology that we have now, the ability to do this, is is something that I see. Uh, I, I think what happened is, you know, when I saw your podcast come out, it just seemed. It seems so so natural, but then it also at the same time, it's like, well, why wasn't anybody doing it? And then that's, I think, why I was so pleased, because it's sort of so right in your face, but then there's nobody that was doing it. And then you were just like, well, but I'll be doing it. And so, <laughs> I, you know, it was just something that I saw on TV happening for all these other areas, and then it wasn't mm-hmm. happening for, for research and math education. And, and then it was just sort of like, just kind of snapped all together. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, and I think, you know, with podcasts, you can have a very specific audience in mind. You know, right. so um, right. the only the people that it kind of appeals to are going to be the ones that go and download it and listen to it, and that's fine. That's kind of the whole. That's one of the nice benefits of podcasting. Right. Yeah. Now, while you're here, I also want to kind of tap your expertise um, because, like you say, you have the internet coming to you, and you kind of are doing the sifting and curating of these resources. So I was wondering if you could share with the listeners and myself some of the sort of most valuable resources that maybe we haven't heard of. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something that's kind of been a nice perk to what I've been doing is to kind of start to find things and and I, I you know I'll share a few things with you and I'm sure that some people uh, you know will be familiar with with some of the items that I'm going to share but if you're not familiar with some of these uh, then I think that's that's quite interesting so I kind of you know I thought about this question a little bit before uh, before we started having the conversation so I've kind of broken them down into a couple of different categories if that's if that's okay with you yeah that's great. So one of the things that I think we're finding a lot is is video is taking off, sort of math casting or something something similar to that. There's a bunch of, of great videos, uh, but there's one one group that I absolutely uh, I, I think can do no wrong, and that's Numberphile, uh, N-U-M-B-E-R-P-H-I-L-E, and uh, Numberphile is I think one of one of my favorite attempts at popularizing uh, mathematics through through short videos. One of the ones that they've done that that is just kind of really resonated for me, and they they went in to look at how to order 43 chicken McNuggets. Uh, so <laughs> what they're doing is they're going through the drive-through and they're trying to order a certain number of chicken nuggets. And what you're doing is you're getting into Frobenius numbers. So they they have these very lovely ways of of tackling uh, some very very interesting topics in mathematics, like Zeno's paradox. All these different uh, topics are addressed by number file. So if if I were to only have one recommendation, uh, or if you haven't heard of Numberphile, uh, I think if you're interested in math and the teaching and learning of mathematics, then be prepared to spend uh, an afternoon uh, watching a bunch of uh, uh, Numberphile videos. They're fantastic. Oh, great. Uh, you know, and connected to that, uh, there's, there's some other ones. There's an honorable mention that I don't think is as widely known, which is known as Art of the Problem. Uh, so we're seeing a bunch of different people that are that are sort of using uh, YouTube uh, to to create these videos. Art of the problem, you know, Mathalicious is probably something that people are quite familiar with. Uh, these are kind of kickstarted or, or crowdfunded. Some of them have been crowdfunded to kind of get going. So those are those are some of the video uh, uh, sites that I I've definitely spent some time. The other category that I had for you is is audio because uh, I like to walk and I like to walk my dog, but I also like to be kind of listening to things as it's going on. So uh, obviously we have to plug the Math Ed podcast here. Thank Uh, you. That's something that (laughs) is definitely in in the earbuds every once in a while. 
Uh, but there's another one that's called Relatively Prime, which was also uh, crowdfunded. And uh, the gentleman, I think it's um, Sam something. Sam Hansen, maybe. I'm not sure. I can't remember the name. But this was uh, a person who's gone around and done uh, 10 particular episodes and has a very uh, broad approach to, to the topics that are being covered. But it's been done, uh, been done quite well. Uh, also, in terms of audio, there's um, Marcus Dusatoy, uh, mathematician in the UK, has has done a podcast called "A Brief History of Mathematics," uh, which I think is is really well done. And there's a couple of other ones, uh, Math for Primates. There's a BBC podcast, more or less behind the stats, which I think is something that uh, that would be of interest to people as well. And you can find these links, these audio video links on my website. I have a link at the top that says audio video links, and a lot of these are mentioned there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the last thing I think that uh, that I wanted to mention uh, is that if you're interested, there is a group on or a community, I guess, on Google Plus, uh, which has been started by Radar Moswold, uh, who's also heavily invested in social media for math education. He has a math education research community, uh, so there's lots of people that are involved in the community that are talking about different topics and kind of keeping up to date with each other and what's going on. So I would definitely recommend that. And the last thing that I would recommend is if you're into blogs uh, and you're interested in following blogs, but you think that there is absolutely no way in the world that you could keep up with all the blogs that are out there, Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. But fortunately, (laughs) there's been a group called mathblogging.org whose sole purpose has been uh, categorizing, organizing, uh, taking all the blogs that are out there and sort of doing the task that we all think is too difficult to do because we don't have the time. Well, fortunately, there's a group of people that are organizing all of the blogs dedicated to math, math education there as well. And, and they're a lovely resource to uh, to sort of navigate that sea of, of uh, data or, you know, too much information there. They're doing a great job with it. So those are some of the things that I would definitely recommend if you're not. And if you're a fan of, of a new approach to journalism, you know, the rock star statistician Nate Silver has started a new website recently called 538, uh, and he's taking quite a unique approach to uh, to a lot of the journalism that's going on out there. I would definitely give that a, a plug at the end. My guest is Egan Chernoff, uh, who, as you can tell, is a, a wonderful curator of mathematics education resources uh, on the web. His website, mathematicseducation.com, has links to uh, all these things that he was mentioning, as well as a lot of other resources, so that's uh, one that you can definitely make your way to if you want kind of that clearinghouse to be able to find these other great resources. So, Egan, I have one last question for you, um, and this will now change directions once again, but this is actually stepping outside of math education. Um, if you weren't in math education as a field, what would you see yourself doing? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, um, part of the reason that I got into into math was uh, in university uh, chemistry. I can't remember if it was inorganic or organic chemistry. One of them just became too difficult for me. Chemistry was sort of my plan when I originally got into uh, into university. That was sort of the route that I was going down. Mm-hmm. And then one of them was just sort of like did not agree, and that's kind of uh, what kind of got me going into math. So so I who knows I might be in a lab somewhere if I was able to get through uh, through that. And there was a brief period of time where I actually think I wanted to be a, uh, a letter carrier, uh, something mm-hmm. about the walking and uh, just kind of. Uh, you know, maybe being able to have the headphones in and doing that. But uh, one of the things I think now, kind of pushing on three, four years uh, of just intense listening to podcasts and to radio shows is I think at some point maybe I'd like to, if uh, we were in a different uh, 
existence, I'd be hosting a radio show somewhere. So that's something that uh, I think is is now sort of, if I were outside of math education, that's something that I'd look, uh, look at trying. I don't know how successful I'd be, but it's something that uh, I think appeals to me in some way. Yeah, definitely. Well, Egan, thanks so much for talking about um, both your, your new book on probability thinking, um, but also, you know, the work that you do um, kind of sifting through the web for us. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. And, and like I said, uh, thanks again for, for the podcast. I think, uh, I think it's years ahead. And at some point, uh, the field of mathematics education and technology within math education will, uh, will catch up and we'll probably be using what you're doing here uh, in terms of research in our field in the future. Egan Chernoff is an assistant professor of mathematics education at the University of Saskatchewan. for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.